Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. So I'm sure, like me, you all have been thinking as we've gone through this summer in this road trip series about various road trips that you have taken in your life with your family. So when I was a kid, uh, my mom, my dad, my two older brothers, we would load up into essentially a cargo van. It was something along that nature. Not quite as sporty as that one. The wheels weren't as cool. Uh, But my dad had a van like that that he drove for work. No windows on the sides, big, one big sliding door. And our goal when we set out to go on road trips was to be as comfortable as possible, right? So you're riding in a van like that, two seats in the front and basically just a tin box behind you. So my dad would get a piece of carpeting that he measured out and cut it so that we'd carpet the inside, shag carpet. Uh, One was purple, actually, it was pretty sweet. And we would also bring some of our living room furniture, like our big living room chairs, and we would put those in there because we wanted to be comfortable as we were on this journey wherever we were going. My prayer for you, uh, especially this week, has been that as we go on this road trip through Acts, that you would actually be uncomfortable. It's often when we're uncomfortable that we're stretched, our thinking is stretched, our learning grows. We look at situations and think, what do I really believe about that? How am I really living? And it can cause us to be a little bit uncomfortable. And so I hope you will take comfort in the fact of knowing that I have intentionally prayed for your discomfort leading up to our time together. So let's jump in. We're in Acts chapter 19 today, and we are looking at what happened in Ephesus. So we're going to start in the very beginning, Acts chapter 19. Verses 1 and 2. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, when I was reading that in getting ready for our time together today, I was struck by that statement where they said, We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And it made me stop and think, I wonder, with all of the people at Christ Community gathered at all four of our campuses today, what is the level of familiarity with the Holy Spirit? Because everybody's heard of God, right? Some people might not believe in God, but you never enter into a conversation with somebody where the name God comes up and they say, oh, who? I've never heard of that guy, right? Everybody's heard of God. The great majority of people have heard about Jesus. They might not necessarily be in agreement about who he was and what he did. But I was thinking, I wonder how possible it is that somebody has gone through their life and not heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in church, in a Christian home, being taught the Bible. And so I can't really remember when I didn't know about the Holy Spirit. I'd heard him talked about. Obviously, my understanding had to grow and change throughout the years. But I started thinking, you know, I could see where somebody would enter into a conversation with somebody and maybe not necessarily mention specifically the Holy Spirit. I even went through our God's Good News books, and 
the phrase Holy Spirit is nowhere in those booklets. Now, that's not to say that that's a bad resource or a bad tool, but it just made me realize you could go through a conversation with somebody and talk with them about God and talk with them about who Jesus is and what he did for them and not necessarily specifically mention the Holy Spirit, right? And then over time, hopefully that learning will come. And it made me think, well, you know, at least I'm glad we're using the New International Version of the Bible because if it was the King James, he's referred to as the Holy Ghost, right? So imagine you're having a conversation with somebody, you go through the God's Good News booklet, they commit to follow Jesus, and then a couple days later, you're like, oh, I forgot. I got to tell you about this other guy. We call him the Holy Ghost. Now, don't worry. He's a friendly ghost. <laughs> In fact, some would say he's the friendliest ghost I know. All right? So you could see where, eh, how do you enter into that? And so what I want to do today, my very first point, is to make sure that you are aware there is a Holy Spirit. We serve a God, one God, who is three persons. God the Father, just call him God. God the Son, call him Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Spirit. And when you look in Scripture, you can see all kinds of different things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So I want to make you aware of a handy little resource. It's called BibleGateway.com. It's just a website that you can go and you can type in topics and look it up. You can type in verses. Maybe you can think of a verse that you've heard and you don't know exactly where it's at. You can kind of remember a couple words. You could type it in and it'll spit out for you all the places where you can find that. So it's a great thing to know about if you're carrying a tablet or a cell phone. Uh, maybe you just got a brand new cell phone for your birthday and you want to use it to engage spiritually with God. That comment might have been specifically directed at one of my kids, but... This is a great tool. This is a great tool for everybody. So I went into Bible Gateway and I just typed in the phrase Holy Spirit. Now, as we'll see in just a minute, the Holy Spirit is referred to in other ways in the Bible. So tools like this have their limitations. But when I typed in Holy Spirit, I just jotted down, you know, a dozen or so different things that the Bible says the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit teaches us, testifies about Jesus, empowers us, encourages us, confirms truth to us, lives in us, reveals truth to us. The Holy Spirit grieves, gives joy, helps us, renews us, gives us spiritual gifts, enables the preaching of the gospel, and helps us to pray. The Holy Spirit is a big deal in our walk with Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself told us just how big of a deal the Holy Spirit is. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to the, to the disciples and he's telling them about some of the troubles that they're going to have and how the world's going to hate them. And he's also telling them that he is going away. And in John 16, 7, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There's been numerous times in my walk with Jesus where I have felt frustrated, I have felt angry, I have felt scared, I have felt lonely, where I have thought, I wish that Jesus were physically here with me right now. 
I wish I could look him in the eye and talk to him and hear from him. I wish I could see him and be encouraged by him in this moment. I wish he could put his arm around me and say, Randy, it's going to be okay. But Jesus himself said, hey, guess what? It's actually better for you if I go away because then you will have the advocate, the Holy Spirit with you. See, the Holy Spirit works differently in our lives than he did before Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit, when we read about, uh, in the Bible, when we read about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we read about him, you know, descending on somebody if they had something that God had entrusted them to do. With you and I, when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him, the Bible makes it really clear. God's Holy Spirit lives in us. Everywhere we go, no matter what we're doing, if you're a Christ follower, God's spirit is in you. That is a game changer in terms of our walk with Jesus. So I hope all of you are very clear on the fact that there is a Holy Spirit. That is a big deal to be aware of. And not just that he's out there and that he exists, but familiarize yourself in scripture with some of the specific things that he does. All right, let's keep going here in Acts 19. Verses 8, 9, and 10 say, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is just a, a phrase referring to the early Christian movement. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So here's Paul and he goes to the synagogue and he's talking to the teachers and the religious leaders and they're having conversations for months. And then after a while, Paul sees, you know what? These guys are obstinate. They're just, they're not having it. So he goes and he uses this lecture hall in the afternoons. He might have rented it himself. Somebody else might have rented it for him to use. And he's having daily discussions with people. Right? So what this probably looks like is in the morning, Paul is doing his work. He's a tent maker. Right? So he's making tents to make a living. He's doing the work there. And then in the afternoon, when it's really hot and everybody kind of takes it easy and relaxes and slows down their work for the day, Paul then goes and uses this hall and has daily discussions with people. And people are coming and going. And it says there, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Well, how is that possible from Paul being in this one spot in this one lecture hall? That's possible because of how strategic and important the city of Ephesus was. So Ephesus, you can see on this picture up here, it was situated at the mouth of a river. It was one of the most favorable seaports in the province of Asia. So a lot of people are continually coming and going, doing their business. Ephesus was incredibly important economically. Ephesus was the leading city in the richest region of the Roman Empire. And it had a population of about 300,000 people. So Ephesus is a strategic place. What happens in Ephesus impacts the surrounding area in a very significant way. Nobody ever said, what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus, okay? It was the exact opposite of that. 
What happened in Ephesus had implications in a far-reaching way. And so because of Paul's ministry there, that's how people in the entire province are able to hear about the word of the Lord. So what are some things that are happening while Paul's in Ephesus? Verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles. Now, I don't know about you, but that phrase alone made me stop and think. Because usually when I think of just the word miracles, I think of extraordinary. So when the Bible says these are not just miracles, these are extraordinary miracles, it made me sit up and say, okay, what's about to happen here? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So here's Paul. Now, probably those aprons and handkerchiefs are things that he's using in his work as he's making these tents, right? We've all seen, whether it's cooking or carpentry or something, there's appropriate aprons that you wear for the job to protect yourself, to keep you from getting messy and wipe your hands on. He's working, it's hot. He's got these handkerchiefs and cloths that he's wiping sweat off of himself. Those are probably the things that are being referred to here that are being taken to people and they're being healed. Now, this passage of scripture we would refer to as a descriptive passage, right? It's describing for us what happened. It's not a prescriptive passage. It's not telling us how things should happen. So if you know people in other states that are sick, this passage is not encouraging you to go home, pray over a napkin, and mail it to them. This is an extraordinary miracle that God chose to use in that way in that time. And we don't really know that Paul had anything necessarily, like we don't know that it was strategic with him. I remember I had in 1997, I had cancer and I was in and out of the hospital uh, this one particular summer three times. And so somebody tried to do this for me. They read this passage and they sent me this little cloth that they said they had prayed over. And I was like, ah, you know, thanks, I appreciate that, but I don't think God needs your cloth to heal me if he wants to heal me. I'm going to jump to the end of the story. God healed me. Um, but those things, if God chooses to act in that way, he can. Doesn't mean he's going to just because he did here. Okay? Now, I did hold on to it just for a couple days before I got rid of it just to make sure. But I ended up getting rid of it. And we don't even know if Paul was intent. Like, we don't know if Paul was the one that was taking these things and praying over them and saying, hey, go get them. We don't know if this just happened. We don't know how this happened. I like to kind of think that it was accidental. Somebody walked into Paul's shop, they touched something that he had touched, and they got better, and they went and told their friends. And pretty soon, Paul coming into work every morning, he's like, where is all my stuff? Right? I don't know if it's that, that's how it happened, but it could be. But what we learn from this, our second point for today, is that the Holy Spirit's power is extraordinary. Right? It says God did extraordinary miracles. The Holy Spirit's power is extraordinary. Oftentimes in a conversation, people will misuse the word literally. I'm not about to do that. We serve a God who literally does what is impossible. We look at things, we look at situations that are impossible and God does them. Right? We see it in our own lives, in prayers that we have prayed, 
in what we have received from God. We certainly see it in scripture all over the place. Right? We see miraculous healings. We see people walking on water. We see bodies of water being parted. We see the sun not setting. We see God inventing the GPS and leading his people with a cloud by day and fire by night. And it moves and they follow it. We see dead people coming back to life physically and spiritually. And one of my favorites, a talking donkey. I mean, come on. That's just awesome. That encourages me as a teacher. Anytime I'm getting up to teach somebody, I think, okay, God, you used a donkey. So I can probably say at least one thing that's going to be helpful, right? God does what is impossible. What I've been telling your kids for years around here is something that I hope you will know and that you will remember. God is both all-powerful, omnipotent, and God is love. If God were only omnipotent and only all-powerful, but didn't have love for us and didn't choose to use his power on our behalf, what good does it do us? If God is only love, but doesn't have the power to enact his love on our behalf, what good does it do us? But God is both. And God always, in every circumstance, every single time, brings the fullness of his power and the fullness of his love together to work out his best plan and purpose for your life. So when you face situations that are scary, when you face things that are nerve-wracking, when you're looking at something that feels like an insurmountable burden, when you're questioning, God, why did this happen? Why didn't this happen? I hope you will remember that the power of the Holy Spirit is extraordinary and that we serve a God who always, every single time, when we don't agree with the way he's doing it, when it doesn't make sense, when we're confused, he always, every single time, brings the fullness of his power and the fullness of his love together to work out his best plan and purpose for our lives. And if you're here today and you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, I hope knowing that will encourage you to at least think about it and have a conversation with somebody and ask the question about, okay, explain to me more about what does that look like in your life? That whole dual power love thing that God does sounds pretty good to me. How do I find out more about that? Because of the recognition that people in Acts 19 had about God's extraordinary power, a lot of people wanted to try and get in on that. They didn't always go about it the right way, though. So in verses 13 through 16, we read, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's what you call a bad day, okay? 
I mean, you know, you can find yourself in a situation where something unexpected happens and things don't go the way you want them to and you get a little bruised up and bleeding. I suppose it's possible, unlikely, that you accidentally have something happen and you end up naked. But when it's both at one time, just go home, okay? Like the day, just wrap it up. And these guys said, hey, I don't recognize you in connection with the power of the Spirit. I recognize Jesus. I know all about him. I recognize Paul, but I don't know you. The Holy Spirit's impact cannot be counterfeit. You can't manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't see, well, this is what God did in somebody over here, and so I'm going to try and replicate that. You can't say, hey, look how God uses that guy. That is amazing. I want to be used that same way, so I'm going to do what he does. It doesn't work that way. What you and I can do is humbly seek the will of God and say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? And as you faithfully and obediently do that, then God will use you. The Holy Spirit power of God that is extraordinary will show up in a way that's not counterfeit, but genuine. Look at what happens when we see people doing that the right way a few verses later. When this became known, so when what happened to the sons of Sceva became known, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So these people see what happened to these sons of Sceva. And they realize what our third point is, that the Holy Spirit's impact cannot be counterfeit. And they start to confess what they have done that they should not have done. They start to confess their dabbling in sorcery and occult practices. And people that weren't followers of Jesus see what's going on and they say, hey, I want to follow that Jesus because that power seems real compared to this power over here. And so they come and they burn these scrolls that the Bible says totaled 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was about a day's wage. So 50,000 days wages. I did the math because I knew if I didn't, some of you would and you'd be distracted the rest of the time. That's about 136, close to 137 years worth of wages. So this group of people come together and they make a declaration about what they believe the Spirit's power to be and they do that and they back it up by action. And it costs them something. What has the impact of the Holy Spirit cost you? What did it cost you when you first surrendered your life to Jesus? What is it costing you now? In what ways can you look at your life and point to this is the genuine work of the Holy Spirit and how it's showing up? How are you investing your money? How are you investing your time because of the Spirit's impact? Who do you love 
that you would not love if it weren't for the Holy Spirit in your life? How do you serve in ways that you would not serve if it weren't for the Holy Spirit's impact in your life? At three of our four campuses today, we had students follow Jesus in baptism. And that happens because of the impact of the Holy Spirit in their life. It happens because of the impact of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people that God has put them around. Sometimes their parents, oftentimes volunteer leaders in our ministries here at church. People that have served with them in Kids World when they were younger and laid a foundation that helped them to understand who God is and what God has done. People that are walking with them currently in our student ministry environments and investing their time and their energy and their prayer into the lives of those students so that the impact of God's Holy Spirit can be seen. How does your life on a daily basis display the impact of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 23 says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think that's funny. Right? You've got all this stuff that's going on. Paul's teaching people about the Holy Spirit. The Bible says they start speaking in tongues. Aprons and handkerchiefs are healing people. You've got demons talking to people and beating them up. And now there arose a disturbance. So when I read that, I thought, okay, this is going to get pretty good. Like what's coming next? If that other stuff wasn't a disturbance, what is? Well, here's the disturbance. Another reason that Ephesus was so prominent of a city was because of their worship of the goddess Artemis. So it was this religious cult worship that was going on in Ephesus. Artemis was the moon goddess, goddess of hunting, patroness of young girls. And the cult had a very close connection with magical practices and sorcery. Right? In fact, in the Bible, the book of Ephesians that was written to the people in Ephesus, in the passage that talks about the armor of God, Paul writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. It's because he knows the climate and the culture of Ephesus. In fact, in Ephesus, there was a temple to Artemis. It was the largest building in the Greek world, made almost entirely of marble, 220 feet by 425 feet. That's about a football field and a half. 127 columns that were close to 60 feet tall. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So there's a representation of what it would have looked like, some ruins from the actual temple. So Artemis is a big deal in Ephesus. And so this guy named Demetrius, a silversmith, whose business was making paraphernalia that was connected to the cult worship of Artemis, gathers together a group of people in Ephesus. And not just any group of people. The Bible tells us they met in the theater. The theater in Ephesus seated about 24,000 people. So this is not just like Demetrius and some of his buddies meeting at his house. This is a big crowd. And he gathers them together and he says, Hey guys, there's this Paul dude. And he's telling people about Jesus. And because of that, 
people are no longer worshiping Artemis and they're starting to follow Jesus. And I would guess that Demetrius, I want to give him some benefit of the doubt that he actually was concerned about the discrediting of their religion. But let's not also, you know, let's not pretend that he wasn't also concerned that he's losing money. He's making things in this group of people that he's gotten together. They're making money off of the worship of Artemis. And so the Bible tells us that this crowd gets worked up into a frenzy. For two hours, they start chanting, great is Artemis of Ephesus. And the only reason that they ever kind of bring an end to this, the Bible describes it as a riot, is because they knew they would have gotten in trouble from the Romans for letting this disturbance happen. But when I read that and thought about, okay, what does that look like in our lives? Like, how is this important for us? The last point that I want us to be aware of is that the Holy Spirit causes great disturbance. And so when we look at what was happening here, what was the disturbance that was caused? It was because Paul and his teaching and people in their following Jesus were in direct um, dispute with the cultural idol of that place and of that time. When you and I follow Jesus, it's going to fly in the face of our cultural idols. Now, when we think of idolatry, idolatry is basically worshiping anything created instead of the creator. Anytime we're worshiping created things rather than the God who created, that is idolatry. And idolatry and worship of created things doesn't just mean you're bowing down on the ground to an image of something. It doesn't mean you're singing songs to something. It's about how do we live our lives? How do we, what's our priorities? What's our focus? And there are plenty of things if we look around our world and our culture today that we can see as idols, right? The pursuit of significance and importance and success is an idol. And if you're going to walk with Jesus, the way you live and what you teach is going to be in direct contradiction to that. Pleasure, self-gratification is an idol. What do I want to do? What is best for me? What is most pleasurable for me? That's an idol. And when we follow Jesus, our lives are in direct contradiction to that. Our families can be an idol. If the focus and priority of all of your time and all of your resource and all of your energy is geared toward you, your children, the people that live within the four walls of your home, if you're not careful, your own family can be an idol. And not just, you know, kind of big mass cultural idols, but specific pockets of culture can have their own idols, right? Students, when you gather together at your school, your school, if you're careful, if you watch, if you observe, you can 
you can depict and pull out some idols that are within your school. And imagine, what would it look like if a group of students got together in a particular school and said, no, we're followers of Jesus. We're going to live this way in direct contradiction to the idols that show up in your school. That's what Paul did. That's what the followers of Jesus in Acts did. And that's what got people in an uproar. Because the Holy Spirit causes great disturbance in our culture and in our own lives. And so, as we're sitting here, as some of you are sitting here thinking, do I want to follow Jesus? I hope you do. But I hope you'll understand that not everybody will come alongside you and pat you on the back and say, hey, that's great, we're with you in this. Because the way you live will start to be in contradiction to things that they value and things that they think are important. When you live in contradiction to idols and when you live in worship of God, it causes other people to start looking at the way you live and think, what, you think you're better than us? Like you used to do this with us, now you won't anymore? It causes them to look at their own lives and start to wonder, how am I living my life? What's important to me? What am I focusing on? What am I worshiping, even though they might not use that word? And that's why it's so important that all of us that are followers of Jesus support one another, encourage one another, challenge one another. Because when we go out into the world, not everybody appreciates how we live and what we believe and what we say and what we value because it flies in the face of their idolatry. But if you're trusting in the power of the Spirit, if you're trusting in the God who is both all-powerful and all-loving, you can know that even in those tense moments, he's working out his best plan and purpose for your life. And so I hope today, as we leave, we will leave a little uncomfortable when we think about how do our lives match up with what we see happening in the Word of God. I hope we'll stop and we'll ask ourselves, where am I maybe not living in contradiction to those idols as firmly as I should be? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your word that instructs us, that challenges us, that encourages us and comforts us. I thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, we give you praise because you are powerful and the work that you do in the world and in our lives is powerful. And we trust you that when our obedience to you, when our faith in you causes a disturbance, that you are with us, guiding us and directing us. We want to see genuine impact in our lives and in the lives of the people around us because of our faith in you, because of our obedience to you. We love you, Lord, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.